This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode number 80. Are you ready? You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your hosts, Michael Blanc. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show today. Today, I want to formally introduce you to Nighthawk Equity. Nighthawk is the company where we're doing all of the Michael Blanc deals through that come out of the platform. Patrick Duffy, who introduced you in session number 74, talks about his journey in closing his first 69-unit deal without prior experience or his own cash because he brought it to Nighthawk Equity. We joint ventured with him and closed that deal his first. And now he's probably on track to do 1,000 units in the next 12 months. Since we publicized that, the floodgates have opened. The deal desk submissions to Nighthawk have increased, I don't know, 100-fold, right? And so we're tracking about 1,700 units right now at Nighthawk. And so I want to introduce you to Nighthawk and my partner, Mark Kenny. Now, Mark has a corporate background, like so many of us. He was working himself to death, started an IT company, it got even worse and his marriage was at risk of ending and he looked to multifamily to get him to extract him out of that and it was a very difficult transition but he did that from the time he decided to do the big multifamily deals it took him a year to do it and then he subsequently did another 600 units in rapid succession again another case for the law of the first deal fascinating journey and rapid growth he's raised i don't know tens of millions of dollars over the last 4 or 5 years doing really big deals doing really small deals i want you to meet Meet Mark and Nighthawk Equity. Let's get right into the show. Hey, Mark, welcome to the show today. Hello, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. So I'm really excited to have you on here and learn more about your story and why you're on the show. But you obviously have a lot of multifamily experience. Just give us a little bit of overview of kind of what you've done over the last few years, and then we'll kind of dig into your story a little bit more. As far as on the multifamily side, what I've done? Yes. So, yeah, I started buying some larger multifamily properties about four years ago. I've purchased over 2,000 units in the last few years, actually. They range from sizes of eight units up to portfolio for 454 units and everything in between, essentially. You've really built up a huge track record, raised millions of dollars in the process. So, I'm very curious about, first of all, why you got started. So, I know from knowing you that you had a corporate job, which was really cushy, maybe, <laughs> maybe a little high stress. Yes. I don't know. Describe what happened where you woke up one day and you started looking around at maybe something else and you start looking at real estate. What precipitated that? So I actually started buying smaller multifamily 23 years ago, right out of college. And what- Why would you do such a thing? That's really <laughs> if, unusual. If you knew my childhood, you would know why I did. But you know, we, as one of seven kids- twin brother and everything and very entrepreneurial even as a child. I have no idea why because it was not modeled for me. Parents just didn't have money. We had the necessities like food, but I tell a story where, you know, in, in football, I'm wearing tennis shoes playing football. I mean, it's not, it's not right, right? You should, have, you should have cleats when you play football. And, you know, just kind of grew up saying, I told my mom and, and said, I'm never going to have my kids be like this uh, from a financial perspective. And I graduated in accounting from Michigan State. And ended up becoming a CPA for a couple of years, but I bought right away. And I said, I just know I need to do something different. I didn't really know what I was doing. People say, you're young, dumb, and clueless, you know, sometimes when you make decisions. 
But I loved real estate because I knew it was tangible and I knew it was something that wasn't going away ever. That's what drove me really was childhood, not having things. So how did you get into your first deal and how did you kind of fund that getting into it as a young guy out of college? Right. The first deal, my brother and I went into just together on that deal. I think we paid $36,000 for a duplex. Of course, it was a small town in Michigan and we had just saved up money over the years mowing lawns or working different odd jobs and saved enough to be able to put down payment wasn't that much on a 36,000 but it was a full full rehab dude I'm like it took me a while to realize it's something I didn't want to keep doing those full rehabs like that myself so you did that duplex what did you do afterwards uh quickly after that I started buying three four unit the biggest we bought was four unit we bought maybe six seven properties somewhere around there and just kept buying and knew that I wanted to keep buying more and more. And unfortunately, at the time, I was also traveling, doing management consulting. So I was on a plane Sunday through Friday that long ago and would come home and fix toilets and drywall and everything else on the weekends. And I was newly married. So you can imagine that did not go over very well with my wife. No, it did not. So you were doing all this stuff. You actually got a job. It's not like you got out of college, slipped right into real estate and kind of were retired out of college. It sounds like you got a job. What was that job like? So after being a CPA for a couple of years, I, I worked for KPMG Consulting, doing business management and IT consulting, essentially. Then I went to SAP, which I know you're familiar with SAP. Some people might not be, but it's a very large software organization out of Germany and a multi-billion dollar company. I worked for them for for a while and started my own IT company in 2008 and did well with that. In some cases, I did too well. I got to the point where I was saying I couldn't replace that income. Mm. But I got also to the point where my personal life was falling apart mm. because I was working 80 hours a week, sleeping three hours a night, had all these projects really all over the world. And that part was good, but everything else suffered, physically suffered, you know, personally suffered. And it caused problems. So four years ago, I was like, man, I can't keep living this way. I won't be married if I keep doing that for one. Kids won't know who I am. <laughs> mm. I made the decision to stop doing a IT consulting. It was a big decision because I took a huge, huge pay cut to do that. I was making really good money at the IT company, but I knew I had to make the change. So my why was I didn't have a choice. I had to make it work. Hmm. You kind of quit cold turkey or did you start building up? What did you do to kind of transition from where you were to being a full-time investor. Right. Fortunately for me, I'd had some other projects going on at the time that were larger projects and I turned it over to somebody else to to run. So I did have some income coming in. Mm. Of course, it was probably maybe 30%, 40% maybe max of what I, I had when I was actually doing project work too. And I stopped actually trying to find more more projects. So I didn't really stop cold turkey necessarily, but it was a big financial hit. But it was fortunate. I was fortunate. My biggest thing was I don't think I can replace my IT income. That kind of held me back from getting more involved in, in real estate at the time. So that's amazing that you did that. It sounds like you replaced yourself, which means that you had to pay someone to, to take over your job, which was highly compensated. And then you decided just to focus full time on just finding more multifamily. Was that your way out? It was. That's what, that's what I did. Mm. And it, it took about a year to get our first kind of, you know, okay sized deal. And then after that, as you know, too, Michael, once you start doing deals, you kind of get a, hopefully a good reputation where you start getting more and more deals sent to you and better and better broker relationships and building that team that can kind of get in there and start doing more and more deals. But it, it took a while. 
It took a while. So you had been, quote, dormant for a while, right? You hadn't been doing deals in this time? Or were you doing small deals while this was going on? Some small deals, did some flips, and pretty much did everything. But did everything and concluded that's not what I wanted to keep doing and wanted to go to larger properties. Now, had you syndicated deals before 2008? Were you kind of self-fund them? Family. So Family, I did some yeah. deals okay. with my sister, my brother, and that's really it. So from the time that you decided that you were going to do basically replace your income with multifamily income, when you were, were strategic about it, how long did it take you to do that first deal and, and kind of what size was it? It took almost a year to the mm. first deal. It was 64 units, mm. two properties right next door, same seller. But it took a while to get that first deal. Was that the first time you syndicated it or how did you put that together? It was. It was about a million dollar raise. We syndicated that deal and we had one other partner in there from a general partnership and we brought in, I think it was uh, 14 other investors in the deal. Now, it's amazing that you did this in a time where you said your personal life was a bit in shambles, right? Because now on the one hand, you all of a sudden were able to spend more time with your family, which is good. But on the other hand, you gave yourself a 70% pay cut. <laughs> How supportive was your family of what you decided you wanted to do? Well, from my wife's perspective, she was very supportive. She kept telling me to quit well before that. Just walk in there and quit. So we'll figure <laughs> it out, right? I mean, you know her a little bit too, Michael, but she's like, hey, I'll, I'll we'll figure it out. We'll just get through it, right? And my son... In particular, because my daughter at that time would have been five, so she's a little bit smaller. But my son, he was like, how many deals do you have to do, Dad, so you don't have to ever go back to an office again? You know, and So that was actually kind of gut-wrenching a little bit. So I, hmm. I had a big why to do that. But they were extremely supportive, without hmm. a doubt. You know, I still work a lot now, but I have the flexibility that I've never had before in my life, which is great. So it took you a good long while to do your first deal. And again, you know, you could argue either way that 12 months is not a long time to do a 64 unit deal. On the other hand, I can see you have some experience and you're maybe a little frustrated with it. But how long did it take you to do your second deal and your third deal? And what sizes were those? Right after that, we just started buying more. A couple months after that, bought a 208 unit, bought a mm. few months after that, bought a 255 unit, then a 454 unit, 344 unit, and just kind of in a short period of time. I mean, this year alone, we've purchased 800 units in Atlanta. Once you kind of get going, it's all about getting hooked up with people that know what they're doing and have the the relationships that you might not have. Is it the case that, you know, the first deal is, when I say the first deal, you had done other deals before, but it was the first time you did a real, a bigger deal that you had raised money for. And it took a lot longer than you think, than you thought it would have taken. Do you have to like work extra hard not to do the second or third deal? Like, is it almost like your giant magnet like once you do your first deal, like if you attract capital and deals? We did. You know, I got nervous. And I think you should get nervous when you're raising money for sure. But I got nervous because right after closing the one deal, a few months later, we're raising 2.8. And then <laughs> we raised 6.2 right after that. And then raised four right after that. All in a matter of, you know, less than a year. So it was like 16 million. We did attract the capital. The thing that I found though was that we had a hard time in Atlanta for a while. We couldn't find a deal in Atlanta for about a year after we had already kind of established ourselves in Dallas. So the trick there, which isn't rocket science, was we hooked up with somebody there that already had the relationships and the track record in Atlanta. And that just opened the doors for us to get, get deals down there as well. Yeah, I see that repeatedly, Mark. And I'm still looking for an exception to the law of the first deal, which says that you you do your deal of any size and you'll replace your income in two to three years. And it's an uncanny phenomenon that a first deal is so... And there's something curious about it, right? It's like a giant domino that's really hard to push over, takes a long time. But once it does, you'd almost have to exert force to stop it 
a second and third deal from happening. And it just happens over and over, which is why, you know, we both agree that first deal is is so important. You're right. And I it's hanging around people that actually understand it. So my dad, he's 80 now, but the first deal I ever made an offer on, I was actually still in college. I was 22, I guess, at the time, right before graduation. And my dad basically talked me out of the deal. I love my dad to death, but he's 80 and he's never bought a rental property in 80 years. I was getting advice from the wrong person. And he had some reasons why, but that deal would have done been fine for sure. And so I got really nervous my very first deal. And, you know, then I got kind of the point where I didn't really want to take my dad around <laughs> to the deals anymore because he always he would find something, some reason not to do it. And some of them are valid, but at the end of the day, you just have to pull the trigger. You need to go. There's risk involved with anything you do. And if you listen to the wrong people, you're never going to do a deal. You know, it's so important, like you said, to surround yourself with the right people. And unfortunately, your friends and family may not always be the right person. That's right. And, you know, I noticed that. And that's where you and I met. We met on the Real Estate Guys cruise in April. And that's what I noticed. I felt like I was the most inexperienced, the dumbest guy in a room, which is a strong indication that I was in the right room. But even I don't know, myself, Michael. You can, no, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, even for myself, as like, you know, I'm not in those rooms frequently enough, right? So I need to be around people that are just performing at a much higher level. And so you and I just kind of hung out a little bit and didn't really know too much about you. You had your family there. You guys homeschool your kids like we do. And we just kind of hang out until I found out that you own 2,000 units. I'm like, holy cow, this guy, you know, he's got a serious track record here. And that's when you and I got into conversation because, as you know, in our programs, we allow people to submit deals to partner with us. Right. And you had a big presence in Dallas at the time. And so that's kind of where we started talking about potentially joining forces to basically scale up the transactional side of the business. Right. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what we think and we want to do there? Yeah, I think like you mentioned, kind of doing your first deal is key. And chances of someone doing a deal, let's say some size, pick a number, 60 units, doing that on their own with no track record whatsoever and never signing on a loan with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, or it may be, it's very slim. Our first deal, we actually had somebody else that had the experience that helped us, and that was beneficial. So these people that go out looking for deals and people need to tell them. End of the day, it's very difficult for you to do your deal, your first deal, even if you have the capital. It doesn't matter if you have the knowledge. If you don't have the relationships, the brokers are going to say, hey, I don't have any confidence in this guy's ability to close a deal because he's never closed a deal before. And that's critical. So having somebody where you can leverage their track record and their when I say reputation is critical, and it's not easy doing your first deal, but I say it is easy if you actually partner with the right people. It really is. And we're finding that, no, that's, Michael. That's right. And the syndicator has a problem with money and experience, right? So there's a clear value proposition for someone to partner with them. But from our perspective, from the syndicator's perspective, you know, our biggest issue is finding the daggone deals. Right. Good deal. Right. Good deal. So, so it's actually a really great partnership, right? So if you have the ability to hustle, find deals, negotiate deals, and bring them to someone who has the ability to raise funds and has the experience, it really is a match made in heaven. And this is why I like the idea of actually combining our collective experience and our ability to raise money with someone out there able to find good deals, which is a really, really hard to do right now. Absolutely. And it gives them, you know, Patrick is a perfect example, right? This smaller deal back in April. Now he's looking at, you know, a 492 unit deal and a 321 unit deal. He would never, he'll say it himself, right? He would never feel comfortable doing that on his own, but he feels with the comfort level because we're there to support him. So you're talking about Patrick Duffy. We interviewed him in session 74. 
So definitely listen to that one because Patrick talks about how he found the deal, how he partnered with us in the process. And since we released that to kind of the masses, the floodgates have opened where people said, oh my gosh, if I can find a deal, these guys will actually bring all the capital. And it really has, I think, empowered everyone to kind of go, oh my gosh, this is actually really possible. Before we talk about the response, what we want to do is scale this transactional business up. And we created an equity company called Nighthawk Equity. Kind of a cool name, Nighthawk. So anyway, now going back. So now once this was released, the floodgates kind of opened. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of response and kind of deals that we're not only looking at, but that we're pursuing since that deal closed in April? Yeah, we have deals kind of all over the place. I mean, Oklahoma City, Dallas, Memphis, you know, Houston. The biggest fear people have about doing a deal, in my opinion, is their capital raising, getting the money. Oh my gosh. But I would say if you have a deal that actually makes sense and you have someone that knows what they're doing, look at the deal and they said, yeah, this is a good deal and they can take it to the investors, that fear is diminished significantly. Right. I mean, that's the whole key. We have people all the time that say they can raise money. You see it too, Michael, right? I can raise money and you put them to the test and they can't do it because they don't have a track record. They don't have the, they don't even know what to say to people, how to approach people when you're doing an investment. So we have deal of all different sizes. I think probably the smallest is 60 that I can think of in Houston going up to 492 units in, in Memphis and every, anything in between. So you're right. This, this is really giving people an opportunity to say, Hey, if I can find a deal and, and get the relationship and get a deal that's close, then these guys can come in and first vet the deal. I've also told people, and you know this as well, Michael, this isn't a deal you should be pursuing. If you want us to raise capital, we can't do it. But it's probably a pretty good indication to people it's probably not a good deal, right? So I think it's important to tell people this deal isn't going to work. It is to tell them it's going to work. Don't have them do a bad, bad deal. Right. I mean, before we put this program in place called the Dealmakers Mastermind, I would get the emails going, hey, I got a deal here, Michael. Take a look and let me know what you think. Right. And they think they're helping me, right? When they're not at all. These are typically like publicly listed deals, right? That anybody can pull off and they've done no analysis. They have no inside scoop on a deal, right? And so by the time the deal gets to you, like what has happened to that deal by the time it's presented to Nighthawk? The person who found it would do their initial underwriting as you, and they'll also answer some questions about the deal, which are critical, right? What's the story behind the deal? That's, that's what's critical for, for us to look at a deal. Then they'll go through the coaches and they'll, they'll vet the deal and then they'll go through Patrick before I even look at it. So it's gone through a number of layers of checks and balances. So the time it gets to me, it's a you know pretty strong likelihood that it's a deal that would work. Now, as you know, we'll find things, right? We're just different things you might know about the deal or the area or whatever it might be that we might still decide not to move forward with it. It's been vetted well before I actually see it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So a lot of work has been done. By the time it's presented to Nighthawk and you see the deal, a lot of work has been done, right? So you're not going to say, hey, here's the OM, you know, let me know what you think, right? So there's been right. there's been an, uh, an underwriting, there's been feedback on the underwriting, then a coach qualifies the deal and asks, how real are the assumptions behind the underwriting? And if they can't back up any of their assumptions, they're going to be sent back to the drawing board. And then maybe they come back or maybe the deal has now died since, you know, the rents actually aren't right. $100 under market like you thought they were. <laughs> and I think too, yeah, exactly right. It's a good point. And Getting us involved early enough, if you want to say, we've gotten deals where they're already under contract. You know that. And and I've looked at the contract and go, holy cow, this this contract is all for the seller and not for the buyer. And maybe someone new doesn't realize that. So we now we're in a position where we're having to go back and say, 
for us to move forward, these are the things that need to be in the contract to protect everybody involved. So getting the involved us involved before you actually have the, the contract signed would be a good good thing, in my opinion. <laughs> That's a good point. We don't want it so far into the deal where we have to undo right. things, right? But on the other hand, not only does the deal have to be analyzed and researched properly, it has to be what I call pre-negotiated, meaning that they should have at least a verbal agreement on terms or they're negotiating on a number that is going to make sense once you end up on it. But we don't want them to actually execute a letter of intent or even worse, a contract, because many times... Uh, especially if it's a newbie, there's terms in there. You kind of go, right. ah, why did you agree to that? And so now what we have to do once the call gets to us is we have to say, you know what? A 14-day due diligence on a 300 unit probably right. is not going to work for us. And now they have to go back to the broker and now look like, a, like an idiot because now they're That's already right. starting to backpedal early in the phase. That's right. That's so, all avoidable. So there's definitely- That's all avoidable. A, yeah, it, it is definitely avoidable. So yeah. So where do we want to take this thing, Mark? I would say, you mean Nighthawk? Yeah. Never stop. Never stop. Yeah, have never a lot stop. more Patricks. We have other guys right now, two other guys on the deals that are brought in. I mean, you know, one guy's doing his first deal, 80 units, and you now he's looking at larger properties. I, I think it's it's all a mindset. And it's also someone that go from, you know, 69 units or whatever to 321 units in a matter of, you know, five months or it might be, and not having a fear of doing that is incredible. So it's it's yeah. really a, it's a mindset of what you can do and you get the right people involved, you can... I want people to go way faster than I went. I do. I would love it. I, mean, I look at Patrick going in. I love seeing what he's doing. You know, we're there step by step to help him. So he doesn't, you know, he is newer, but he has no fear of going after these properties. He knows we yeah, can do even it. Even the two new deals we're doing with two new students, you know, you can already see their their confidence level skyrocketing, right? Correct. So, And maybe the second deal they'll bring to us, or maybe they'll do their own deal on by themselves. You know, to us, I think this is why we see eye to eye in this stuff. I think partnering, joint venturing with students is to our detriment. It really is because we're leaving money on the table and most likely it's costing us a little bit extra time. But we both feel like helping people do their first deal so they can become financially free is kind of part of our mission. So this is a great partnership because we kind of see eye to eye. It's a little bit different, right? Because we're not definitely not maximizing our profit. But the way, other way I look at it also is Patrick, Philippe, they may likely bring us other deals down the road or they may not, right? right. But they're definitely going to go on. And Patrick already has shown that he's looking at 320, 420 unit deals. And like you said, he's got no fear, right. you know? <laughs> right. And and Philippe is going to be the, the next one. He's going to close this deal and he's going to look around going, all right, I'm going to need a bigger a bigger gun. He has one right? already. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the key. It's the, you can go as fast as or slow as you want. And I understand people have jobs, don't get me wrong. And it's very difficult to go look at deals every day or it might be. But that's where you need to partner with other people that can kind of have – bring something to the table you can't bring. There is a time commitment, but – What's the alternative? Work till you're 65 or 70 years old, which is fine. There's That's nothing right. wrong. I'm a identical twin brother. And he he's fine right now working for a corporate. He he actually, you know, even though we have the same DNA, <laughs> he's okay doing that. I'm not. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing, you know, you don't look down at people because they're doing a corporate job. That's what they want to do. They can invest their money themselves. They don't have to get their own deals. Yeah. No, that's awesome. So I'm really excited that you're on board. I think we're going to do great things together. We're going to help a lot of people in the process. Now, you're in Dallas, and I just want to call you, you're, you're in the Dallas area, and you actually also teach people how to invest in multifamily. And especially if you're in Dallas, you know, I would encourage you to look up Mark. He's got some in-person events. And so I definitely want you guys to check him out if you're in that area. So how can people best find you, Mark? 
uh, thinkmultifamily.com. So thinkmultifamily.com. And my email is mark at M-A-R-K at thinkmultifamily.com. Love to talk to people. Find out. If nothing else, you talk and say, hey, multifamily is not, not for me. At least you know. But we find there is so many people out there. And I love and young people. I mean, you know, not all millennials are, um, you know, have a millennial mindset. People say the young guys are out there trying to kill it and get these deals. I love it. So we're definitely talking about the syndicators, but we're also now talking to the high net worth passive individual, right? So I want to talk to you for just a brief moment as well, because as we scale up, it's very difficult for everyone to kind of find consistent yield with an acceptable level of risk with fantastic tax benefits. And multifamily is probably the way to go. So if you're interested in learning more about passive investment, I encourage you guys to check out nighthawkequity.com and we'll have some resources there as well for for people to find out more about how to become a better passive investor and some resources there. So what advice, Mark, you've worked with dozens and dozens of passive investors. Let's talk about that real quick. What is your advice to someone who's interested in investing in something and maybe they're not quite sure about multifamily? How would you steer them towards multifamily and away from maybe stocks, options, or you know some other maybe alternative investments? From personal experience, I would say, you know, everybody needs a place to live without a fact, right? I mean, some people live on the street. I understand that. But if you compare it to other asset classes, let's say we've done stuff with like self-storage. I was going to invest in a deal that ended up falling through in self-storage. But at the end of the day, if I had to, I could take all my stuff from self-storage and put it in, in our place. I don't want to, but I could. If I have assisted living, which I love that area as well for real estate, but end of the day, maybe mom or dad come live with you in your place. Maybe don't want them to, but they could. So I look at multifamily that it's, it's critical. It meets the basic need of shelter for people, the way it's valued versus some of the other asset classes with a, with a cap rate. You know, essentially a multiple is, you know, incredible. Every dollar I can increase is 10 to $15 extra, which is just phenomenal. So I think multifamily really, you know, there are a lot of other investments. Multifamily is key because everybody needs some place to live. And that's what people are drawn to. And it's not going away. I mean, good times are bad times. And it's right now with the millennials and people that are 55 and older that are renting more and more, it's just going to continue to increase. Now, not only that, but I really like the way multifamily performed in the last recession. Arguably one of the worst times in decades. And the default rate on multifamily was far under 1%, 0.4%. And that includes both California and Florida markets. So I really like that. And then there's the tax benefits, right? I mean, the taxes you're going to pay on the income from your passive investment is either going to be hardly anything or nothing at all, right? Because of the depreciation. So I really like the combination of all those things. Depreciation, as you know, without going into all the details with multifamily doing cost segregation where you can actually depreciate even faster in some cases a big piece of the of the building if to pay to get that done but the savings in that way maybe it's it's five to seven year depreciation versus 27 and a half which is good i mean end of the day if i can make zero on my taxes that's what i would prefer to do yeah so if you guys are interested in investing passively learning more about that go to the michaelblank.com forward slash invest we're getting our website up, so by the time this airs, I'm not sure it'll be up yet, but michaelblank.com forward slash invest, there'll be something for you to see there. So check that out as well. We'd like to learn more about you if you're interested in investing with us as well. So, all right, Mike, that's it, man. I appreciate it. Real glad you're on the show. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. So that was Mark Kenny. We're really excited about Nighthawk Equity and what we're going to do together. 
helping people do their first deal and providing value for passive investors. So if you're the syndicator and you're interested in partnering with us, then go to themichaelblanc.com forward slash partner. That's themichaelblanc.com forward slash partner to find out more about how you can do that. If you're a passive investor, then go to themichaelblanc.com forward slash invest and learn more about what you can do to work with us on the passive investing side. Either way, we really look forward to hearing from you and engaging with you and figuring out how we can help you achieve your financial goals. All right, guys, really appreciate it. You guys take it easy. Catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.